When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Football, Matthew Collar. It's football. You are Mr. Football. I guess so. And it's football time. Well, didn't you tell me that now you've got people out at uh, the TCO Performance Center who actually just yell at you football? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you are, you're football. I've tried uh, to make, it, make it the make it the brand. Yep, um, you've done a good job of that. So people, that's right. People will walk by me and just say football. I, say, I mean, some people are football. associated with religion. Some people are associated with politics. Your calling in life is football. God put you on this very planet to have pigskins in your head. You know how football-y I got recently. Uh, did a podcast <laughs> with a film analyst who's really good. We've had him on the air before, Ted Wynn. And we broke down how the Vikings will both take advantage of and defend RPOs, run pass option plays, which are now in vogue, this, Judd. This is just the height of <sighs> of fantastic geekiness. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, that's the one, it's pretty great. That's the one good thing about aging. You can be a geek and not care. Oh, it gets way better if you're a geek. Like as you right, go along, but I'm saying if you if you're 13 or 15 or 17 and you're a geek and you geek out to football, you can do that. But people basically say, "What are you doing? You're in the prime years of your, you know, you should yeah. be doing this or that. Why are you such a geek?" But at your age now, you're like, "I'm a football geek and I'm embracing it, and I don't care what you people think." So this is like when I was growing up, there. The fact that I told you about the video game thing from 2005 mm -hmm. and then the history going back before that of other games tells you a little bit about the geek level. But, I mean, I had Baseball Digest and thousands of baseball cards and football cards where I would make out 11-on-11 11 -11 lineups or nine-man lineups, pitching rotations of baseball cards that I had, and that would be a thing that I did that day. And so the level of geekiness is through the roof. And at the time, it's like... Yeah, don't you want to, like, uh, go hang out with other kids? Like, ah, not really. Just, you know. I'm with you. And so, well, baseball cards were, I loved my baseball cards. But now it's like, well, that's that's what I do. So now it sounds right. cool. Of like, oh, man, you were talking to, like, football people? Like, yeah. And, right. right, because you, you can now <laughs> pick up your phone and call them. Well, that's cool. And that's in cool all seriousness, yeah. have discussions yeah. where when, when you're eight, it doesn't work so well. I'd like to talk about the RPO. Who is this? <laughs> Listen, mister. So it's changed now. But, yeah, I I think the greatest thing about our jobs is you can embrace the geek now. The geekdom is the geekdom is right, now almost right. cool. So, like, when you say, I broke down RPOs, I'm like, oh, I'm sort of intrigued. 
And the other thing is, too, that I convinced someone to marry me. So it isn't even like I have to worry about, like, picking up chicks or whatever. No. Like, let me explain the RPO to you on a first date. Now, like, my wife is just, she's the same way. So, But she we're, likes we're sports. That. Yeah, that's what I mean. See, my, my wife doesn't necessarily like sports, but she embraces my geekdom, and it doesn't bother her. Yeah. And that's all you need. And so once you have that, you can feel great about it. Yes. You're like, well, I don't care about any of the other of you. And your life is complete is, is complete then. Exactly. Uh, so so tell me about your philosophy of the fact that the Vikings are going to hold a, a joint practice at the TCO Performance Center once again against Jacksonville this week because we saw uh, the Jets and Washington were doing that yesterday. And not surprisingly, they had a bunch of fights. So they had a brawl. A few years ago, the Raiders and Cowboys had a massive brawl. And I think that they can't do that anymore, get Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. Um, Joe Thomas on his podcast talked about wanting to get paid for joint practices because they are so much extra work for players and that they wear you down. And coming before a preseason game, he called it like playing back-to-back days for a preseason game because they're going to practice with the Jaguars this week and then play them at U.S. Bank Stadium at the end of the week. And I don't really get it. I don't really get it for this team. You just went 13 and 3. You went you won a playoff game so you played two extra games from the year before. You are coming off a year in which you had good health for the most part aside from two guys knees, you were good for last year all 11 defensive players and then now you're going to bring in another team but not just another team, another team that's nasty. Yeah. The Jaguars are a nasty, mean, attitude team. Now, they're not bringing Jalen Ramsey, I think. I think he's suspended which, for the week, right? Which is good for the Vikings because he's the type of guy that would start a fight. And and I, I don't really understand the logic behind this yep. of it, it seems like a little bit overthinking it of like, all right, well, the expectations are higher, so we need to do everything more to get these guys ready. Let's have them practice against a great team and the Jaguars. But I think you're just asking for problems or you're just wearing people down a little more than you need to by having this. So the Vikings did this, I want to say, in Mankato and River Falls back in the day against the Chiefs. And they eventually brought it to an end because of exactly that, fights. Lesnar, the year that he tried out uh, for the Vikings defensive line, got in a bunch of fights. I I remember in Wisconsin covering the joint practice, which was a year that Chiefs were on hard knocks, actually. Mm -hmm. And Ray Edwards and who was the Chiefs player? Turley, I believe. Kyle Turley got into a big brawl. Oh, yeah, Turley. And so they basically said, and in fact, um, a Kansas City player might have also, during one of those practices, broke his leg. And eventually they said, it's not worth it. Great. This strikes me as something where football coaches think to themselves, more football, the better. But ultimately, if you thought, thought about this in a more modern way, I think you're probably right, which is it's not worth it's not worth the trade-off of potentially getting guys getting fights and also potentially you've got guys getting hurt. And so I don't disagree with what you're saying. As you go into a season where you absolutely need every person healthy all the time, every team needs that, but every team doesn't have Super Bowl aspirations or an argument that they could be a Super Bowl caliber team. And maybe it's not the quarterback who gets hurt, but maybe it's two guys competing a little too hard and somebody just pulls a hammy and is out for six weeks. But they're going to be moving like, different. You don't need that. Right? See, I, I think the contention has to be that if you practice against another team, you're probably going to be trying to extend yourself a yes. little bit more than yes. if I'm practicing against you and and we're teammates. And I might want to beat you, but I'm probably going to be a little bit more conservative in my approach. And this is a team already that had, I think it was day three, a fight between two players. 
Avion Collins and Devontae Downs got in a fight. AC, you call him. AC, yeah, that's what everybody close to Avion Collins calls him is AC. Um, so there was already that fight. And then Stefan Diggs and Xavier Rhodes got thrown out of practice a few days later. Yep. Things have been contentious already. You could kind of feel the tension with this team because of what the expectations of them are. Yes. That you get this feeling that they know that and that there's confidence in their talent level, but there's also this tension of everything everything matters and there's a lot of pressure and there's the potential for distraction. And when you bring in now another team, I'm not saying it's guaranteed because this happens all the time that someone's going to get hurt or whatever. I just don't really understand it necessarily because – of what they did last year, which was not have a joint practice and went 13 and three. The joint practice thing is also weird. And and I get it back in the day, but it's also weird now in, in a league that's made so many steps to make the camps not be as tough, right? You're, you're not in full pads as much. You certainly don't hit uh, practices. Practice days are shorter. To me, this is a relic of something that was really popular in the past, but I don't know now if, if it fits into what uh, football has become. I mean, when you're looking at a league, in fact, I wrote this down this morning, uh, heard it on ESPN, you had over the weekend 25 penalties for guys who were accused of, some right, some wrong, dropping the helmet to make the tackle, right? Like everything this league is doing for the most part is trying to make it safer and trying to make at least non-games safer and games as well. So to me, the joint practice thing is very much, let's say, 1995. I don't yeah. know it's 2018. Yeah, it feels that way. yeah. You know, let, now let's way. go out there and get some good work against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Okay, but what's the trade-off for that? Yeah, and, and when you see other teams brawling, you just get a little nervous there. I, you know, you just get a little like... Or you uh, just don't need that. Okay, right, yeah. I don't, and you can tell, I don't see the purpose. And if you're Zim, you can tell your players, I don't want this all, all you want. But if somebody punches you in the gut, are you just going to be like, ah, Coach Zim said I can't fight today. Right. Or are, are you going to get PO'd right. and go back at the guy? Funny story on that. Uh, the Buffalo Bills, when Doug Marone was the head coach, now he's the coach of the Jaguars. One of your favorites. One I know of that. my great friends in the world. Um, I, I'm sure that he can't wait to see me. So, um, anyway, they had a joint practice with the Pittsburgh Steelers. So they went down uh, to Pennsylvania and had a practice. And then they came back up to Buffalo and Marone made them practice again the next day. What? And one of their leaders, who is, was 30 years old and had been there his entire career, called out Marone after the practice in the media for doing that. And he basically said, it's ridiculous to make us practice against, practice against another team, which he hated already, right. and then come back and practice again. And this is the type of thing that you just sort of open the door to. That's asinine. Of players being unhappy with what you're doing on a team where everyone – is pulling in the same direction at this point, but if someone gets dinged up in a joint practice because a Jaguars player is trying too hard to make the squad, right. it's going to be like, what did we do this for? Well, right, because if, if you're a Jaguars player in these practices trying to make a name for yourself, you're going to say to yourself, they're Stefan Diggs. Now, if you're a Vikings player going against him, you're going to say, say to yourself, if, if I really want to make this team, I'd like to play well against Diggs, but I sure as hell don't want to hurt him. Mm-hmm. If you're a Jaguars player, you're going to say, I don't care. So I think all you're looking for so, yeah, you're not is, wrong. Just, is just survive this week. Like, just, just <laughs> hope that's not that, the way it should be. No, I agree. Like, you're introducing and I this. I don't get it. I really don't get it. But you just hope, like, that 
the Jaguars come up and everything's fine and they practice against each other yep. and the Jaguars talk about how much they like the facility. That's that is the best case scenario for this. And maybe maybe they forget one of their guards. Like maybe they go back and like how the like Dominican players or whatever would come over oh. and play international and then one of them would they sneak defect out the hotel. Yes. To our state. Yes. Maybe you could get From a Northern Jaguars Florida. guard. I actually to like defect. that idea. That's good stuff. Uh, let's come back and talk more. Vikings, Vikings, Broncos, our impressions from that game. If you want to join the conversation, 651-646-8255. Wetmore talking twins right around the corner as well. All those backups, Bill Turner and Elijah Wilkinson, are going to be called upon. Heavy pressure on Simeon, trying to set the screen up. Able to get it away nicely. Rock Thomas going to go the whole way. Off the screenplay for 78 yards to the house. How about that, Collar? Rock Thomas, my Mr. Mankato, getting off to an awesome start. Two touchdowns. Uh, Yeah, you know, I, I guess going into the game, I would have had Rock Thomas as number three in the race for the number three running back uh, amongst Mac Brown and Mike Boone. That Boone had a lot of buzz, but when he actually was out there, looked like he struggled a bit with the vision, with the pass protection, uh, he did make a nice catch and had a run later in the game, but not against Denver's better players. And Rock Thomas was not only making big plays, two touchdowns, mm-hmm. but he also was, you know, shredding tackles and falling forward. And I I'll get I get real football in here. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> yep, sorry. Running behind his pads. Oh, you got to run behind your pads. He was running behind his pads. If you can't run behind your pads, you're of no use to Mike Zimmer. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. I know. The the pad level in which you run, it's all about the the balance and how easy you are to be taken down. So it doesn't matter how jacked you are, how -hmm. many crazy muscles you have. It tends to matter a lot more the technique you run with. And Thomas showed better running technique and was able to fall forward when he was hit as opposed to Mike Boone. So he he shot himself up from I'm not I don't think this guy has any chance to whoa, okay, now he is in the lead for that spot because the first team no one really cares what you do, it doesn't matter. But everybody else, like he was the first guy in which was interesting yeah, and was. I think what that says is he is the most talented running back of the group. He was a five-star recruit coming out of high school and it kind of reminds you in a way of like a dig story of Things didn't really go perfect for him in college, and maybe there were some concerns or he wasn't on the radar so much because he left Auburn. But the raw talent from what he had is up at the top, and it showed the other night. Daniel Carlson, the fifth-round kicker that the Vikings drafted, made field goals of 39 and 57 yards, um, made all the PATs. Kai Forbath, the veteran competing against Carlson, kicked off. Now, I'm guessing Saturday against the Jaguars, at U.S. Bank Stadium, they will reverse their roles, and Forbath is going to h- handle, I'm guessing, field goals and PATs, and Carlson will kick off. Uh, but we saw Carlson certainly in practice during times last week struggle. What does this do? I, I've I've gone from being convinced there wasn't a competition to then last week watching Carlson struggle, saying there might be one, to maybe being back to saying I'm not so sure that this is actually competition. Yeah, I'm very wishy-washy um, on this one. That, it's hard to figure this because when Carlson took all the kicks, I thought like, oh, it's over. Uh, this is it. Uh, he wins, and he nails a 57-yarder, so I don't know what Forbath can do. But, yeah, if Forbath comes back and nails three or four of his own, then we're right back to the competition is on. And I would remind you of last year, the competition was real between him and Marshall Kane last year, and Kane hit a 58-yarder 
last season because he was another guy with the big leg and all that. And Forbath ended up coming out still uh, victorious in that. So I, I wouldn't entirely count him out yet. But the fact that he got the first kicks, yeah. you know, you kind of look more in this sort of thing at the order in which they put guys out there to try to figure out where everyone stands. So their fourth round pick, Jalen Holmes, he did really well, but they didn't bring him out to the fourth quarter. Right. They're like, okay, so where does he stand in this defensive line rotation? Same thing kind of goes for the kickers. If the rookie's getting first kicks, it kind of tells you, all right, he must have a little bit of the edge here. And I think if Kane had been a draft pick, he probably beats out Kai last year. Yeah. I yeah. think the fact I think the fact that we're talking about a guy who who you not only took in the fifth round, and if I'm not mistaken, Blair Walsh was a sixth round pick. Uh, but you're also talking about a guy who you traded up for to take. That's why I've gone back and forth. And for the most part, if Daniel Carlson does not make this team, it's going to be a huge surprise. Yeah, I'd say so at this point. I mean, the fact that he nailed all the field goals, but there's still a long way to go in this. And in practice... Look at you giving me the footballisms. But it's been up up and down in practice. I know it has. It has not been For good. both guys. I saw it last week. He missed... Uh, he missed at least two midweek, if I am not mistaken, in game situations. And then I told you, he went to a side field and missed like two or three. Big deal or not that Anthony Barr, after missing uh, some practice time last week, did not play. And I know guys didn't play, so he's not the o- only starter who didn't play. What's your read here, though? Because I, I can't decide if this is a contract extension in the works, and so they're trying to make sure he doesn't get hurt before that, if this is some type of protest. And I thought that Mike did say at some point that he's not hurt. Okay, so after we're not going to trade him press conference. Which was also very weird. Can I just, like, pause that thought for a second and Mm -hmm. just say that I was on a Denver radio station just leading up to the game, and the first question they asked was, like, so outside of Cousins, has there been any other storyline so far? And I was like, how long do you have? Like, how long is this segment? Because we could spend the whole time on all the other. Like, that's not been a storyline at all. Oh, Kirk? Oh, yeah, he throws good. That's it. That's oh, yeah. Like, he's oh, been he's, fine. A non, he's a non-storyline. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, sure, he seems like yeah. uh, he's doing he's doing great. Mm-hmm. He's got control of the offense, smart guy, and that's all I got to say about that. But everything else has been all over the map with this team in the first couple of weeks. And this Anthony Barr thing is strange. It is strange. Because after the press conference that Zimmer called to debunk rumors that didn't exist... He uh, did say Barr tweaked something, okay, and that's why he had missed practice. Now, Linval Joseph missed a practice, and he said, look, I mean, it's a long season, and I'm Linval Joseph, and so if I don't feel 100%, I'm just going to stand over here. Now, and if they are using the data tracking and the analytics and things like that, they might have looked at Anthony Barr and said, well, look, uh, he's – done a lot of work here early on and we want to try to work some rest in for him. There's still a long way to go before the season. This guy knows Mike Zimmer's defense as well as Mike Zimmer does. He's going to have any problems going out and making the calls in week one. So he's good. Like, let's just give him some time off because that's what we should do. Uh, With the backdrop of his contract, though, it does feel a little odd, but he said before, though, I'm making $12 million this year, guys. It's I'm good. And, and like I'm not, I agree I'm with not that. on the street here. And I'm with that. I mean, he's going to be if if he wasn't being compensated well, then I would say this is definitely contractual. But he is. So it's just there's always a story or two per training camp where you're like, this doesn't seem exactly right. 
And, and of course, the team's going to, to do their best to sell you on, right. oh, no, it's nothing. But I'm sorry, when when Zimmer, who doesn't especially appreciate or enjoy talking to us, when he calls an impromptu press conference, that makes me say, okay, this this seems off. This seems yeah. odd. And so I can't decide. I can't decide. I mean, it could be a contract. It's just about done, too. I don't know. But I think to just dismiss this and say, ah, oh, it's just bar, it's no big deal, is the type of thing where in two weeks you find out, oh, no, there was there was something going on behind the scenes. Someone just tweeted something great. What do you got? Just something so good. A picture of a young Judd Zolgad in a jacket, looks like, so it must have been wintertime, with a gigantic recorder in the face of a young Lindsey Whalen. You look great, Judd. Same haircut. Where is this? Uh, our friend Corey Heppelitz tweeted this at us. I think I remember this day. I think this was when I was, I think this was during their final four run, and I was dispatched to the practice to go cover it and get a story. In fact, I'm sure of that. I'm not that young there. I'm like 35. How far we've all come. I mean, yeah, I'm young there compared to now. <laughs> I have to find this, though. 2005. or two. No, 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 no. I would have been 32 or 3, I bet. It's 04. Yeah. 04 final four. Okay. 34. I love how you just called me young, and I was your—I was the age you are now. And yeah, you, and you, were, I don't consider you to be that young. What were you doing at this point? Were you uh, done covering the Packers? Uh, yeah, it, I would come back. So I covered the Packers for the Star Tribune in two, uh, 2003 and four. And so when those years, when when the Packers got done, I would obviously come back here and just do GA type of sports stuff. I covered a bunch of high school hockey, which I loved oh, doing. Yeah. High school hockey is great. And then the Gophers got hot, and and we had a bunch of people covering them, but they assigned me. I think I did a Whalen story. But, yeah, that was a great assignment. That was fun. GA stuff is fantastic because you're under no pressure. You float around and get stories. What uh, did you think of where women's basketball was going at that time? Like, Did you have a sense – did everyone have a sense of, like – wow, this is really going to kind of catapult this sport in Minnesota? Or was it just kind of, oh, this is a one-time thing? And It seemed it seemed like it might be a one-time thing that, that was fun. The difference, though, was, was that team packed them in. In fact, I want to say before that team, so before that team got hot, because they, they had been a, a disaster shortly before that, Matthew, before that team got hot, they were playing at the, at the pavilion across the street. Mm-hmm. And attendance got to be so much that, that they said, Let's go back across the street and play in the uh, big arena. And so that was fun. And and you had a sense that it was going somewhere, but I didn't know where. But they were they went from from the pavilion being empty to Williams being absolutely packed. And so the thing with with that team though was they were eminently likable too. Mm-hmm. Like, they were characters. They were really good kids. So it wasn't just a good team. It, it was a fun team to cover. And by extension, fans liked that team a lot. That was uh, Waylon, McCarvel, that whole group. And that team was embraced, not only because they took off and were really good, but because they were a good group of kids. If you if you missed it, Lindsay Whalen announced she's going to retire. And she was on with us earlier, so we're going to have that up on our website pretty soon here. Um and it was just it was really cool to talk to her about sort of the end of the ride here and a good time to announce it now as opposed to waiting until the season ends whatever may happen championship is still possible they're going to make the playoffs 
Um, but then having that sort of hang over her head and questions about that as she's trying to focus on the Gophers, sure. to have it very clear to everyone, this is it, and we can celebrate her down the stretch is very cool. So I'll, I'll be there tomorrow night, and it's going to be awesome. So the the big uh, Waylon night will be probably the last game of the season, correct? Like, I'm not sure that yeah. they would yeah, against, do that in the playoffs. Uh, Washington. But, okay. All right, let's take a break. Uh, come back, talk some twins with Derek Wetmore next. Mackie and Judd, Matthew Collar in for Phil. Now with 1500ESPN.com senior web editor and resident seam head Derek Wetmore, presented by the Canopy Group for the best insurance coverage at the absolute best price. It wasn't like they were, you know, hitting it all over the park. They were hitting some good spots and some holes that opened up uh, when they had base runners and, you know, that three hole a couple of times. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was mostly good, and I, I thought, you know, for the first time out, you, you got to be pleased. I didn't want to risk going too far there. Um, a little misfortune, we missed a play at third base that uh, cost us at least one there in that particular inning, and then the walk to Goodrum and they turn it over Rogers. There, gentlemen, is a beaten down man who is counting the days down, Derek, until this season mercifully ends. Molly is. Uh, He's a good trooper and soldier, but um, when you're losing two or three to Detroit, God bless Detroit. And when you come out of the All-Star break and get swept by the Kansas City bleeping Royals, and when the, when you're not dominating the White Sox, and then your players get traded, you are a defeated man, at least for 2018. That's it. It's, we've seen all there is to see. Now what's left, and we've talked about this before. It's audition time, and I got to be honest with you, I'm interested in audition time. Like, I always yeah. am. It's one of those things, I think, going back to when I was a kid, like, I enjoyed seeing what was coming next. And, you know, oh, who are the next, well, what are the prospects? And, gosh, is what's this team going to look like in 2020? But if you are living in the here and now, if you're a manager responsible for the day-to-day -day activities of this baseball club, I can't imagine, I can't imagine that it's a lot of fun right now being had. Um, there, there's just nothing left to see of 2018. Like where they finish is irrelevant. Now what's important is getting the ship righted for the start of 2019 and beyond. So does this organization look at Paul Molitor's role in the failures of this year as just not really his fault when you go from Sano was too out of shape and Buxton kept getting hurt and Irvin Santana was hurt and Maurer was on the shelf for a little while and Polanco has the suspension. Like he has nothing to do with all of that. And not to mention the most underrated or under-talked about loss is Jason Castro. Yes. Not an A-plus catcher, but certainly a hell of a lot better than the other guys who have been behind the plate. And so when I look at Molitor, you lose one of your leadership positions. You lose your other leadership position at shortstop. I mean, it has just been a mess of mm -hmm. things that he had nothing to do with. I agree with what you're saying. I, I think if you're the front office, you've got to decide. Because, um, of course, this is the question. Oh, uh, uh, like a surprising bounce down season. The manager, yes, he just got a new contract, but is it time to move on? That's the natural question. Sports fandom always runs like this. But I think if... If you're working in the Twins front office, you've got to consider the process over the results. You've got to consider how you got to this point more so than like, oh, we're here, so we need a scapegoat, and it's got to be Molitor. <sighs> I, I wouldn't be offended, you know, if that's the decision that they made, but I think they've just got to be honest with themselves about how this happened and how many of those things can you attribute to Molitor? 
I mean, you could. It's a fairly short list, if you ask me. I mean, you got sloppy fundamentals from some backup players who I think were not impressive this year. Yep. I, okay, maybe that's on a manager to a degree. Or bullpen usage. I think that's the spot where Mulder maybe has to go to school. But I was thinking about this a little bit today in regard to like Joe Madden or guys who are thought of as just A-plus managers and thought, man, every time they've been in a good situation, they've done pretty well. And if they don't have a good situation, if your 25-man roster is a mess, Hall of Fame managers are run of the mill. They they're lucky to finish 500. Yeah, you're not going to win tie games. And that's what the Twins have this year. To me, I look at this roster and I say what they've had available to them is a lot of backup players. The pitching has been okay of the starting rotation, but not excellent by any means. And the free agent additions that you made this winter have just been across the board pretty bad. So I think if you're the Twins front office, you think, yeah, we we liked our process this winter and into spring training and bargain shopping and trying to find guys that fit, but some of the pieces that have been taken away from Molitor, I think you've got to add that up into the math, too, and consider that. So we were talking on Saturday, Judd and I were, to uh, some callers who were not so pleased with the front office and all the moves that they made in the offseason that we praised with, like, hey, Lance Lynn, the career 3.38 ERA, yeah. and Morrison hit a bunch of home runs, and okay, great job, guys. You found these sort of rentals that should contribute. And whoa, yeah. has it been <laughs> a disaster. And I, I think now when I go back to the moment they made them, my logic would have been the same as theirs. Okay, Lomo, maybe he hits 25, but that'll still be a nice contribution. Or maybe it's a 4 ERA, but that's still okay. And instead it was just a nightmare yeah. with both of those guys. Do we put any of this failure on those guys? Of course, I mean, they have to bear it no matter what. It's their record. Yep. But do we lose confidence in them, in Felvey and Levine, because the moves they made worked out so badly? I have not lost confidence in those two as leaders of an organization. Those are failed signings. And add Addison Reed to that right now. I mean, maybe he recovers and is healthy next year and pitches great and you're happy to have a two-year deal. But right now, I bet you're wishing you don't have a two-year deal. Mm -hmm. And Lance Lynn signing late, I think, here's the way I think about it, Matthew. It's so hard for me to say black and white, um, bad signing, so therefore bad decision maker. I think the twins, the way they think about these things is, all right, if we were to sign Lance Lynn to a one-year $12 million contract, what's the highest possible upside? Okay, mid-rotation, maybe leaning toward the front end of your rotation of a club that we think will contend this year, and, and maybe he's making some postseason starts, and we're happy to have that experience from his time in St. Louis. That's the upside. The downside is what you saw. The downside is late to, if you want to call it, get into shape or just round into form, whatever whatever you're attributing as bad April to. Oh, the form was round. See, I tried to. And now he's turned up. Really, for the, really tried to for steer the clear of that. Yeah, and, and that's part of it. You're looking at this whole body of work and saying, like, hey, he's got a long enough track record. We trust this guy, veteran. And then April was awful. Really walk in the park, not throwing enough strikes, not even really challenging hitters, just nibbling, and and it became a big problem. Yep. He did turn it around, and he pitched well enough that you got two actually kind of interesting prospects. That Boston start was huge. At credit to him for sort of uh, reclaiming his value because it was a reclamation project at that point. But I think if you're the Twins for an office and you're considering what's the upside, what's the downside, mm-hmm. what are the chances it goes either way? I still think you'd make that Lance Lynn signing and say, like, yeah, oh, hopefully this goes well. Same for Logan Morrison. Same for Addison Reed, Fernando Rodney, and, no, and, and Zach Duke. And nobody first guessed those. I think like, you could, I can't come back and say, oh, you know, I saw that Lynn signing. Now, mm-hmm. I, I, I will say this. 
I think the young men in in the front office learned a valuable lesson that needs to be considered about chemistry. Because in retrospect, that's in retrospect, in in retrospect, the mercenaries were out for themselves. And that was basically it. But but once again, I didn't sit here in March and pound this table and say, watch out. This is this is going to go. So you got a bunch of guys on short term deals, self-interested. I think we've all learned a valuable lesson about a clubhouse and what goes into success for a team that might not be great, but desperately needs to be able to pull together, which this team could not. It's really, that's a fantastic point on the chemistry because we can look at the numbers and I'm a numbers guy and you, and you know that, that like I would say, yeah, what's Logan Morrison's percent chance of repeating 38 home runs? Well, maybe not great, but I do believe in him as a, a hard contact line drive and fly ball hitter that will replicate some of that success. Pretty good signing on the cheap. And you got an option for, wow, yeah, bargain shop twins. And everyone gave them an A. What I think for the twins need to do is exactly what you just said, Judd, is consider how all of this impacts. Consider how even taking a clubhouse leader like Brian Dozier and being like, nah, all right, whatever. We'll just see how this goes. We'll play out the string. I think that can really impact team building as well. The other thing that we as media and observers need to do a little bit better job Consider the downside anytime some of this happens. What's the trade? All right, the downside of this Fernando Rodney trade is pretty minimal. It's that the prospect never turns into anything. Okay, well, that's fine. We should address that instead of just saying, oh, they got, you know, they got a prospect or, oh, they got these uh, free agents and things are all going to be great at Target Field this year. We sort of have to consider the range. And I personally think that the Twins did that. They just got really, really unlucky with the way some of this panned out. It also seems like what has happened inside the locker room is not great this year. It seems like some of the players that they brought in weren't exactly the best guys that you would want in a locker room, especially if you have a lot of young players. This team didn't really have all sorts of young players everywhere, but maybe not the best situation. Could go along with losing, but I think it also has to go along with some of the guys that they brought here. And maybe they should have reconsidered on Lance Lynn because of his personality. Or maybe they didn't know. But say, I've never seen someone so miserable. Like, he just did not want to be here. Yeah. And that should have been part of the equation is who you're bringing into your locker room. Because that, I think that stuff matters, too. I do. And if you're going to be a mercenary kind of working for yourself, that's fine. But if then you're also going to sort of poison the well, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that happened. I'm not. You know, trying to fan flames here and start rumors. I'm just saying that is a real important component to chemistry is what are you going to do on the field? And then what are you going to do to people who look to you as sort of a role model? The twins for scaffolding in the future around the Buxton, Sano, Rosario, maybe Kepler, Barreos. That group, uh, Jorge Polanco, certainly on that list. That group needs to be surrounded by the right type of team. And if that nucleus doesn't turn into a, a great start of a young team, then the rest of it really just doesn't matter. But if they do, then the window dressing becomes really, really important. And I think the Twins got that wrong this year. Mackie and Joe today, Zolgad and Matthew Collar, Derek Wetmore, 1500ESPN.com, our uh, Twins reporter joining us now. All right, sir. So you said uh, earlier that you are interested in seeing things for 2019. Yeah. Give me, give me some of the players that as we watch this sort of uh, treacherous end to a season, give me some of the players who you actually oh. think are worth keeping an eye on yeah. 
And and I will say this, Miguel Sano, congratulations. He does look pretty good. Yep. Physically, he lost a lot of weight. Challenge accepted. Yep. And good uh, for him. And delivered. I, I would I've say I criticized him a lot, so good for him. Twins are probably hoping that it's not a treacherous end of the season. In fact, I I think you would just hope that it just kind of nothing breaks here the rest of the way. Eddie Rosario don't, doesn't get hurt. Don't count on it. Jorge Polanco plays out the rest of it after missing the first half of it. You know, Barreos is primed and ready to be that ace for 2019. All of these things are important. But aside from, like, obviously wishing to guard against injuries, I, I've got five guys that I'm most keenly interested in based on how the first part of the season went and what's left. I'll go to reverse order for you guys if you want it. Stop me if you want to talk about one. I want to know if Joe Maurer is going to be back. I don't know. I don't know how this isn't getting talked about more, and maybe it's just because he downplays it and Molitor's kind of a downplay it personality. There's a superstar player, former superstar player, coming to the end of a mega contract who is as Minnesota sports as it gets, who's in a walk year. Mm-hmm. He might be in his final six plus weeks of his contract. I want to know. I also want to know if he's going to catch up to Harmon Killebrew in terms of number of times on base in his twins career. It's something I've been watching since last year. He's on track to do it. It'll take a lot to get it done, but Maurer could do it with walks and hits and hit by pitch the rest of the way. So I'm watching that, even if it's not like a five-year thing on the future. More five-year things, though, all the rest of these guys fall into that category for me. Is Jorge Polanco the best bet at shortstop? I really like his bat. I think he's made great strides with his glove, but I want to know, is he a second baseman or a shortstop, and which of those positions do you need to go shopping for this winter? That's going to be important. Mitch Garver, he can hit a little bit. I actually like him offensively. I was not uh, impressed with what I saw from him early on as a catcher. I think he's making some strides in that area. I've seen him block some more pitches in the dirt. He seems to be just a little bit better in control of the run game than what we saw early, but it was a mess to start, just quite frankly. When he had to replace Jason Castro and then it was him for the rest of the season, I thought, oh boy, the Twins are going to need some support there because that doesn't look like a big league defensive catcher to me. So not as curious about the bat because I think he'll hit based on what he did in the minor leagues and what he's done recently. But can he be that sort of everyday big league catcher defensively? That's that's a really important point because you don't know what you're going to get from Jason Castro next year. They say he's going to be back opening day. He's fine. He's a catcher. Are we sure? Do you know that that knee that got major surgery that had him miss the rest of the season is yeah. just going to be fine to squat behind the plate? That could be a question. I don't think you starts. win without it. I don't think you win without a great catcher. I, I look at the teams who have won the World Series. I mean, Brian McCann wins last year, like, all-star catcher year after year for his career. Sal Perez. Sal Perez is at the best. Yadier Molina's got what? Two? Three? World Series? Buster Posey has three World Series? Like, it's not the only thing, but it's the biggest thing it's for a thing. me. And if you're going to run out Castro and Garver, and those are going to be your guys, I don't think you're going to be super competitive. I mean, you might make the playoffs, but I don't I don't think that you're going to win with those two. I, it's got to be who's the next franchise catcher coming eventually. And also... The franchise shortstop matters a lot to me, too. And with Royce Lewis, if you're going to take anything away from this season, it probably hasn't been here that Hmm. you're the happiest about. It's that that guy is not only looks like that A-plus sort of leader guy, but he's also killing it in the minors. Yep. Alex Kirilov's on that list, too. He's maybe not the face of the franchise kind of guy, but there's a bat that doesn't get talked about often enough Mm -hmm. for the impressive season that he's put together coming off an injury in the low minor league. So, But, but Matthew... 
Twins fans are tired about hearing what's going to be here four years from now. Especially I want to know now. what's here. Yes, I want to know what's here. Especially, yeah, for the last Maybe. five years you've been hearing, well, well, as soon as Sano and Buxton are yeah. the stars of this team, mm, well, let's let's yeah. address that. I think Lewis is different. I mean, I, I mean, okay, so Sano should be a star. I mean, he already was an all-star and in the home run derby, so that was correct. It's just that he hasn't handled stardom all that well. But with Lewis... For what he's doing already, I think people look at any minor league numbers and they go, who cares, minor league numbers? But as someone who has been there myself, I saw Mookie Betts at the same age as Royce Lewis, like 18, 19 years old, look like he was far in over his head at single A because it's actually tough. It's It's a lot of guys who are 22, have pitched in college, know what they're doing. So a a prospect that young, for him to dominate high A, says a lot about him, and Agreed. I think that his major league trajectory could be in a year or two. Maybe so, and maybe he's on the fast track. Maybe he's one of those position players that you push up and you try to see, hey, when he's 22, is he going to be able to handle this at the highest level? And importantly, is he the kind of guy that can learn on the job at the highest level? Because there's, It sounds like he is. And and if that's the case, then the Twins have something here. But, but still. Let me say, too, yeah. that the, the final two on my list, it would be Miguel Sano. I wrote this column maybe two weeks ago. Is Miguel Sano going to be a good third baseman? Honestly, some pretty encouraging signs in the past two weeks since I wrote this column. He's making that charge play. He's making the backhanded arm play where he just gets to show off the cannon at the foul line, making throws that only five guys in baseball can make. I still have questions about the consistency, ground balls just hit right at him. And, and and the weight. And the weight and playing to his left. Like, there are still very legitimate and fair questions about Miguel defensively as a hitter, as a player, as a professional. Mm-hmm. But he's started to answer those, and I think that the early indications are much, much more positive than I would have expected two, three months ago. When Judd, when you and I sat down and I said, mea culpa, you're right. He's got a, a weight problem. He's destined to be a first baseman at best, more likely designated hitter. He strikes out all the time. This ain't going to work. And at least in the early going, since he's been back, there have been some encouraging signs. Buxton is the last one to me. Huge question mark. When's he healthy? And does he get to play again this year and sort of make up for he some lost time? To, doesn't he? Just, I think absolutely to he, needs to yeah, he needs to play. But there's so much to me that's up in the air about both of those two guys. And I've said this all along since they started struggling. If this team has those two pillars to be superstars and build around, all the rest of it gets a whole lot easier. You can start to smooth over some rough edges if Jake Cave makes some misplays in the outfield and, you know, Jorge Polanco's not Francisco Lindor well, or Andrelton Simpson. Center, so Jake Cave's not right. diving around that's like right. there's no tomorrow and but missing the baseball. Those two guys, crazy. they help smooth over a lot need, of issues. You need Miguel Sano to tell you guys very soon, I'm not going home. I'm spending the entire yeah, offseason here. here or Florida or Florida, but I'm not going home. I'm hmm. not going home. I, I will go visit my relatives for a week or so, but I'm not going home. Yeah. And if he says, I'm going home, I say, take any value that you can get in trade. No, seriously. This if, winter, you if, trade him? If he goes home, he comes back at 320. If he dedicates himself, he needs to take what they did with him in June and replicate that for most of the winter. And if he doesn't do that, you're yep. going to have the same exact problems. And if he does, you've got, as Collar said, an all-star. Not a good player, an right. all-star. I agree with your micro point. I don't agree with the path to it. I think if he takes it seriously and he's a professional and yep. he accepts this responsibility as now a full-time year-round job yep. and not just, oh, I made it so no, I can do whatever I want. I'm it, telling you, he needs to tell you that. 
Like yeah. he doesn't. If the team has to go to him, that's a problem. It's over already. If Miguel Sano yeah, says, I, "I I found Jesus in June in Florida, and I found a new life, and this is my path," then you're in great shape because Jesus he's an all star. June is my band name. Yep. Thank you very Just much. Just decided. Thank you very much. Thanks, Derek. Make a great podcast. Check out Derek's work, uh, 1500ESPN.com. We have podcasts. Another hour to go. Mackie and Judd today, Zolgad and Collar.